the change that we want to see in the world is that equity becomes the default at work. Here we're talking about equity in terms of the systems within our companies and, and let's be honest, within our broader world that are fair, that are just, and that are really valuing and supporting all the different types of people that we have. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. In this episode, we speak with Lauren Pete, the co-founder of Multitudes, the company that's using passive data to unlock happier and higher performing teams. Lauren comes from an amazing background. She's a Stanford grad who's worked in Silicon Valley, the Middle East, and Latin America. She's a courageous founder. She's got such a magnetic personality with rich insights into finding product market fit, team building right at the beginning, how one should foster work cultures that reward those silent heroes, and how we can intelligently bring diversity, equity, and inclusion into the workplace to ensure we have the most incredible people operating systems. Then we speak with Samantha Wong, a partner of Blackbird, to hear about the magic of multitudes and how founders can optimize for their fundraising rounds and whether you should raise venture funds or or simply bootstrap your business. By the way, Multitudes is hiring and they're looking for their earliest customers as well. So if you'd like to work with them or want to learn how their platform can improve your workplace, then check out their website at multitudes.co. Without further ado, here's Lauren Pete. This is obviously such an exciting period for Multitudes, but before we get into how you've navigated building that early product market fit and, and searching for that, let's just start off with what is the vision for Multitudes just to set the context for everyone. Yeah. So the change that we want to see in the world is that equity becomes the default at work. And I'm going to, I need to unpack that a little bit probably because it, it, yeah. yeah, like in startup world, we're like, oh yeah, so equity, like, a, you know, ownership share, right? <laughs> and it, that is important. We do like that. <laughs> but here we're talking about equity in terms of the like systems it, within our companies. And, and let's be honest, within our broader world that are fair, that are just, and, and that are really valuing and supporting all the different types of people that we have. So that's our vision. And then the way that we get there is by making it easy for managers to get insights and support so that they can unlock happier and higher performing teams. And how do you make it easy? Yeah. So step one, (laughs) where we are today is Hmm. we use the data that they already have to pull out insights about both how the work is doing, but I would argue even more importantly, how the team is doing. And and the reason I argue more importantly is because how the team works, it impacts both how well the work gets done, but also how people feel about work, if they're enjoying their job, if they're not enjoying their job, like that's really the, the lever that a bunch of other things flow from. And so how did you decide what features you would build first in the alpha and identify what were the important areas that you wanted to solve for? So the core of it, it's at the beginning, that zero to one stage for us, at least it was that mix of intuition and then talking to users, but it's, mm. you know, like, it's really, there's not really a formula. It's just kind of this like messy thing. And you're like, well, I think this might work. And I kind of heard that. So like, let's stick it in front of people. And in a way, that's why it was it was good that we had all these things that we could just throw together. Cause we were, we were just cranking through different, I was like, Oh, maybe this, you know, and then we'd put it in front of some of our alpha customers and they, you know, they'd react to it. And, but anyway, the core thing was always that people side. It was what can we show them from this GitHub data? So GitHub's our first integration. We're working with software development teams. 
what can we show them that gives them new insights about how people are working? And so I can give you one example that's, we're doing things around it now and there's so much more that's ahead is how can we value the people that are doing the, the glue work or the support work? So that's something where we know there are people and I, you know, there's all sorts of research on this. We know there are people that when you put them on a team, the whole team is better because they're the kind of people that, yeah, they do their work. And you know what? Their work might not even be the best work, but in addition to doing their work, they're giving feedback here and they're mentoring that person and they're making sure the documentation is up to date and end, end, end. And those are the people that are, it's really easy to miss what they're doing because it's really distributed and spread out. But I would argue that those are often the people that you most want to be celebrating and recognizing because they're like, they're the team, the people who are, are acting in team spirit and they're lifting up that whole team. And so that's been a really big one. Like, how can we show who those people are? How can we recognize and really start to value that work? So, so that was one guiding like line of questioning, but you know, we had a few, like another was how can we support well-being with this tool? So, you know, we, people we're humans, right? In the knowledge economy, it's people doing work. We are not machines. We like to still use the language of machinery. And, you know, we have all these relics, like once you look for it, someone pointed this out to me and I now see it all the time. We talk about companies and teams, like they're machines, like, you know, what are the drivers of things? It's, it's this very mechanical language, but actually it's a knowledge economy and it's people. And people get tired, you know, like our cognitive problem solving abilities decline. If you try to make us work for more than 10, you know, 12 hours a day, like we just, it doesn't work. We're, we're biological. We're not machines. Mm. And so how can we then get better feedback loops on like, Hey, here's where the team might be at risk of burnout. And so let's have a conversation about that and, and try to avoid getting people to burn out. Such interesting data. And I hope we make our way into it. Just just the idea of like, how do you determine from data whether someone enjoys it? And actually, while we're there, can you touch on that? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, something we say a lot internally is, first of all, that especially when it comes to humans, data will only ever be a part of the picture. And so a, a key product design principle for us is that we acknowledge that and then we encourage the humans to bring the context to the data. So even if we had all the integrations in the world and we were capturing every single single online digital collaboration activity, that would still never be the full picture because not only do we do things offline, but humans are complex and we change. And, you know, it's just like, it, that's, it's just unrealistic. That's not even our goal. But our goal is instead to, to use the data to surface some interesting insights that perhaps people haven't seen before and then to support people to have those conversations. So our data is getting fed into things like one-on-one conversations and also retros. And I can I can speak to examples from our customers, but we also use our own product. And so, you know, we're constantly seeing how it works for us as a team too. Well, yeah, oftentimes you're the best customer. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're the most probably forgiving because we know like, when there's yeah, a problem, I would imagine it's the inverse, right? It's just like, oh, <laughs> that's fair. Actually, you're most right. We do, we do have high standards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I'd actually love to understand how did you arrive at the first version of the product? What were you doing beforehand? Yeah. So before Multitudes, I was running a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultancy called Ally Skills NZ. And um, so in the day-to-day, what that meant is I was working mostly with tech teams on how to create a culture that was more equitable and fair and inclusive. And the first prompt was that we were always trying to do a better job of measuring our impact. So we would go in, we would do consulting projects, we would run workshops, 
And we wanted to know when we left, was it better? And, and if it was better, was that a lasting change or was it just a like, cool, you know, for a week or two things shifted and then it went back to how it was before. And so we were experimenting with all these different ways to measure it. And then what I noticed is as I was talking to more managers, you know, not only people leaders, but also managers, just how much other people were struggling with it too, of like, okay, well, I'm putting all this time and effort into my team. I want metrics to show the more senior leaders that this effort is paying off, that it's having a real impact. Or I, you know, I think there might be some issues starting, but I'm actually not sure where to look and I'm overwhelmed. There's a lot on my plate. And so anyway, it kept seeing this problem popping up. And then somewhere along the way had the insight that, well, we collaborate a lot these days on software tools. And so what if we get that data and then start to pull out some of these people insights? Mm. And what did the very first product of multitudes look like? Yeah, I love this question. So <laughs> I can answer it in two ways. I can it was take just me you... and my brain. That's it. That yeah. No, yeah. Well, that's it. Like, that was it, maybe... right? Well, yeah. I mean, but there's like the very first prototypes, which yeah. were even more hacky. And then there's the first version of like the thing that became multitudes. So what was the, the hacky version. The hacky, yeah, the hacky versions. It like at the very beginning, I was doing all these variations on like, oh, are there different ways we could do surveys? And it, we were trying it on ally skills. We were doing that to ourselves and like, does this help? Does that help? And like, no, the response rate's still not great. And, you know, like all these things. <laughs> Maybe it's a different question. And then, and and then somewhere like another prototype because I've been learning different coding languages, and so I learned some R. And I was like, I'll just get some. There's a company I'd worked with. I was like, can I just get your Slack data? And I want to just like, I think I can get you some cool insights, and I won't charge you. And they were like, sure. And so it's like me on Stack Overflow. It like took me so long, but me on Stack Overflow being like, okay. Regex, like how do I do that in R? And just like, oh, you know, so that was another one. That was just like great learning. And it definitely, I was talking to one of our developers about like a regex thing he was doing. I was like, I actually know what that is. You know, I've like done that now. So anyway, that those were the prototypes. But even the first version of multitudes, it's the like, you know, if you waited too long to do it, like if you weren't embarrassed, you waited too long. And so the first version, it was to get the data, it was a command line interface. So just very hacky, just like one off, just like do a download and send us your data. Thanks very much. And then the graphs were literally Excel graphs because in a former life, I was a management consultant and like, I'm pretty fast in Excel. Graphs, I'm sure. I mean, you know, not the best <laughs> design, but but the data was there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so when you raised money, what was that version of the product? So we were still on an alpha. We had a really rough alpha. And, and the other context I should give is the very beginning of Multitudes was me doing it part-time outside of running Ally Skills. And then the rest of the team was also doing it part-time outside of full-time day jobs. And so at the very beginning, when we started to see some of the customer impact, we were like, okay, there's something here. We just got to get it far enough that like, we can keep our current customers happy and, and what well, we go raise around and then we'll build the thing that's going to like actually be more scalable. And so we were, <laughs> I mean, I, anyway, the various tooling, like we were using our studio, which is, so it's on the R language and it's just an easy way to spin up a web app. And that's, that's what we had to raise the round. And then this year we've been focused on building out the like nice, you know, react app that is like much more scalable and functional mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And then, and that's our beta, which we just launched. Do you have a process of framing questions? I, it's, I 
don't. I like, I wish I could come up with something, but I think actually, I think the process is very, it's very much based on like the moment, you know, like the, it's like what like digs deep for people. So I would feel that myself, like, and a lot of this, I've been on teams, you know, like, and I work with a bunch of people have been on lots of different teams. And so I think one of the things that's been really wonderful about building this product is we can draw on our own experiences of what we've loved and what we've hated and say, okay, like, what was it in that moment that was really frustrating me? But, and it's like, so that has often been the core. And then also in our user research, there's those moments when you see it with, with our users too, where you're just like, oh, like that, like you got stuck there. That really annoyed you or, and so I think that has often been kind of the core of like, okay, like that's where we need to dig deeper and craft the question. Yeah, that's as much of a process as I have though. No, I love that. Straight to my mind is almost like this heart monitor of, of someone's heart, right? And then looking at it, just shoot through the roof and then really diagnosing why, 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 why. How did you think about finding the right customers? And I just want to distinguish for the listeners, there was the the alpha version of the product and now you're into the beta, the closed beta. Maybe it's it's a good idea to just define what those two pieces are and then how you went about finding the right customers in that alpha part of the journey. So with the alpha product, finding the right customers was one of the key goals. And, and so the way that that product worked is we were all really busy. We had this team that was a part-time team. And so at the time, I, we just wanted to bring in enough people and do enough with them that we could figure out is there something to this? Like, are we even offering anything useful? And then if the, you know, with these insights that we're offering, are people taking action? Does it look like then they're getting the types of like both behavior change, but also outcome shifts that, that we want to be creating with and supporting with our product. And so, so it was, and in drawing on my consulting experience too, it was a very high touch product, you know, like, like the Excel slides, like you couldn't log into a thing and look at those Excel slides. It was Lauren showing up with like, here's my slide deck and let me run you through some things, and, you know? And so, yeah, very, very high touch product um, or process. And the, the values alignment of our customers was one of the biggest things because the other thing about people data. So in addition to data about people never being the full picture, another key premise is that um, you have to be extra careful with people data because we have all sorts of examples through history and in the modern era where data about people has been used to harm people and, and not always intentionally, you know, sometimes it's, it's people even came in with good intent and then the outcomes were not good. And so, especially at the beginning, when we were at our most experimental, we wanted customers that we knew cared about equity and inclusion because that, that was one of our checks to be like, okay, cool. If we do a piece of analysis that like could be used poorly and we didn't anticipate an outcome, at least we're putting it in front of a group of leaders and managers that are really focused on equity and uplifting the team and building trust. And, and, it, and it was amazing too, because it also, it's given us a roadmap for some of the things we're doing now. Like one of the early managers we worked with, he would, I think weekly, he'd screenshot the graphs. So at the time, when we had the, the Shiny app, only managers could log in. We've changed that now. But he would screenshot some of our graphs and then he'd slack it out to his team. And, you know, so those types of things too, where we're like, yeah, cool. This is what it looks like when a team is really transparent and has really open conversations about these types of data. And, and so, yeah, I think that was a really, that was a great thing we did at the beginning. And it was just sort of an intuition of like, yeah, especially now they should be values aligned. And then the things we've learned from them because their values aligned have fed into the, the product roadmap. And especially at that, at that stage where the product is super early on, how did you think about reaching out, engaging with, with those early customers? What was the relationship like? 
did you ever feel like you were pestering them or did you, was it the inverse because you'd already built that trust and relationship from the beginning and they were like all in? Describe how that dynamic worked. Yeah. So the thing, probably my own, this was my own personal hangup at the beginning was, so I, I can code, but I'm not, I haven't worked as a developer. And, 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 and through the prototyping and stuff, for a lot of reasons, we decided that working with software development teams was a great first place for us to, to start. And so I had my own hangups of just like, oh, I'm not a developer. You know, I haven't been like an engineering manager, CTO. Will they listen to me? So, so I just want to name that because that was my own hangup. And, and somewhere along the way, I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not telling them how to architect their systems. I'm talking to them about teams and how their teams collaborate. And it turns mm. out I, I ran a whole consulting business that was about that. So yes, yeah. probably I could, you know, we can have some good conversations about that. Yeah, I um, so, so that was, that was sort of the, that, that piece, but it, it definitely, yeah, it was, <laughs> I had to get over that. And so what was interesting though, and, and what helped me get over it is, yeah, they were really excited to meet. So we had especially at the beginning, we had regular conversations and it was a mix of, I would run them through what we were seeing. And, and I was, you know, I mean, they could probably tell this was happening, but we were always testing. We were like, cool. What if we like, you know, share this analysis with you? And like, how do we point you in the direction of taking action? And right. Like they were just, it was coaching on their data, but also we were just trialing lots of different things. And, and so, yeah, I mean, what I heard from them is that they got a lot of value from that. And then we did too, because it was it was like all this intense user research. Right. And so I think that too, like it's funny. So my husband is also a developer, and there was I was talking to him at one point about some developer workflow he follows, and I was like, yeah, yeah, but you could do it this way. And he was like, do people do it that way? And I was like, <laughs> let me tell you the three different workflows that development teams have for this thing. And it, it was this funny moment where I was like, wow, I've talked to a lot of people. Like I've really learned a lot about the ins and outs of like how, you know, what's the PR workflow and how do people do reviews? And yes, but I think it's because we've been so close to our early customers. And, and even now, you know, with our, as, as we're growing our user base, we're not as close, but we're still very close to all of our early customers now. And yeah, it's just meant what we've learned so much. And how did you discover the pricing model? Yeah. So one of the things that I think we did well is we knew how good we had to get it. Mm. So like we're really early stage. So I could go to a much more established products site and see that they've got three different pricing tiers. And here's the 10 things in the first tier and the 15 in the next and the 30 here. And, you know, and it, there was a moment when I started to look at that and it felt really overwhelming because I just, we're learning so much, you know, like what are the 10 in that bucket and the 15? I don't, I don't actually know yet, you know? <laughs> and so the, it, at some point along the way, we were like, okay, we're just going to drill it back to like, first of all, we need to know, are people willing to pay for this? <laughs> like, is it giving them enough value that they will, they will pay us money for this thing? And then a second thing was, we also, so we're following a product-led growth model. And because of that, it means that the way that we enter into companies is through teams. So it'll be a manager that's like, yeah, this sounds kind of interesting. I'd like to try it out. And so we also needed a pricing model that meant that a manager for their team ideally could just say, yeah, sweet. That's it within my budget. I can try that. Okay, let's go for it. And, and, and that was kind of it. We were like, cool, let's like do it enough that you know, we're kind of pricing towards what we think our value is. So we did do some research and we said, you know, here's our tool. What are other tools that you use that have similar value to you? 
And so like one, one person that we had brought on and, and we're doing research with, he was like, oh yeah, this is like some of the testing tools that we use. And so we just looked it up. We were like, okay, how much do those cost? Great. Okay. We can, we can match that, you know? <laughs> so there was like a little bit of like, okay, well, what is the value to you? How do we triangulate it? And then other than that, we were like, that's fine. We, we just have to nail product. And then if we nail product, we'll have plenty of time later to, to optimize our pricing. Mm. And now you're at close beta. When did you launch that and share how exciting that was? Yeah. So a few weeks ago, I'm like counting in my head. I think it's like three or <laughs> four weeks, something like that. Not long. And so I'm still very much in the buzz from it. it yeah. So first of all, I think the beta launch... <laughs> I could tell you internally, it happened on time. Like there's the internal date you set where you're like, cool, this is our ideal, but we're going to give ourselves a cushion. And we did it on the ideal date. And so I think when I was just really proud, because I think that's testament to the iteration that we've been doing as a team around how we do product development and how we plan. And, you know, there were a lot of things there. Mm. There'll certainly be more for us to learn later, but this one, good job us. And then, and then what's been so amazing too, is just like having new users come on board and all the new things we're learning, which sometimes feels scary. Cause it's like, all oh, the things now, like all this feedback and all these things that we want to improve and features we want to add. But I was mentioning this to you as we were jumping in, I was running some of the numbers yesterday and we've already doubled the number of users and we've actually tripled the number of companies that are on the tool in just however many weeks uh, since our launch. Well, yeah. But it's just uh, that, that tangible moment of customer situations <laughs> is just unbelievable. And yeah. the team must be ecstatic. It was awesome. And it was, it was reassuring too, because I think we've all just been heads down on like, okay, here's all that, like just trying to, to take in the amazing, I'm so grateful for it. We've had some very engaged beta <laughs> testers. So we've just been trying to take in all the feedback and it was, it was really good to have a moment to be like, oh, that's why it feels like a lot. <laughs> it's, it's just, we've had this like step change. So, yeah. Yeah. That makes, I mean, so much sense. And that's so funny. What were your priorities like maybe top three priorities, maybe four to six months ago, and then maybe how have they changed? Yeah. So the number one was, and still is, product. And, but there's a few things within that. Like we were, we've been going through these phases of product development of, okay, you know, is there enough here that people want to pay for it? And then, and then there's just some minimum things that you have to do to be able to launch a product, like have onboarding because it, you know, with our alpha, it was just me doing it with people and emails back and forth. And that's fine when it's a smaller group, but you know, not scalable, obviously. So yeah, there's just been a whole big bucket of stuff around the product side. And then the other one, really has been around us, us as a team and how we work together. So what are, what are those, those rituals and those processes that we have for planning the work for even before that, right? Like on the design side, like identifying the, the questions we need to be asking, doing our user research, and then prioritizing and bringing it into, to our cycle planning. And also on that team side too, making sure that we're really solid as a team, because so we had some of us who were, have been working together since last year with the, in that part-time phase, but then we've, of course, since, since raising the round at the end of last year, grown our team. And so we wanted the new people to, to feel, you know, just as embedded and included. And so there's been a lot of investment also on just like, how are we as a team? And, and do we have that deep trust that you need to go face these massive challenges together? So those have been the top two. And then and, and, I, and I would say like they're top two pre-launch. And then the thing that's changed now that we've launched the beta is that go-to-market is higher on the list. 
Mm. And so I think we've done a really good job on the team side. I think we've got some great foundations. Although I always like to say at this part, like obviously I'm the CEO and I'm biased. So, you know, feel free to fact check me and talk to one of the team members and you can get another perspective. Like you, you know, you could get their perspective too. Cause that, that's the night off. Yeah. But anyway, but you know, like we, I, I feel like we've got some really solid foundations there. And, and so now that we have a product that is much more set up for scale, it's the, it's thinking about, okay, cool. How do we connect with the people out there who are going to be really excited about what we're offering. Mm. And how do you think about attracting those customers? Yeah, there's, I'll just say there's a lot I'm learning here. So this is, you know, what, one of the many, four weeks in? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like one of the many founder hats where like the moments where I'm like, okay, I've never yeah. done that before, but cool. Let's go figure <laughs> it out. Right. So, but one of the things that we have as a strong hypothesis is we are like, if you look at our tool from the outside, people would say, oh yeah, cool. You're in this engineering effectiveness space. And, and we are, but that whole, like the culture, the people side, that's the heart of it. Like for us, the outputs and how we measure them and what happens with them, it's a function of how the people are doing. Mm. And so, so that is a key difference between some of the other engineering effectiveness tools. And the other really big difference is we spend a lot of time thinking about that point that I was saying earlier of how, how do we make sure that our good intent translates into good outcomes, right? Like the good, no, we know that good intent isn't enough. And especially when it comes to people data, we have to check that. And there's like so many times along the way, just as a side note, where we could have moved faster if we hadn't been spending as much time thinking about ethics, but we know that this matters. and so. One of the things that we have as a hypothesis on the go-to-market side is us, like the content where we share that approach and just say, look, like, this is how we think about it. If this resonates with you, then you're probably our people. Like, let's, you know, like try our product. So yeah, I think content will be a really good part. And also how we connect with, with the communities that are out there that also care about this stuff too. Which is huge. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, high level, I've got some good directions and then, yeah. you know, well, come back to me in a few months. Directionally right is, is the best starting point. Yeah. And what do you think managers and teams are finding the most value at the moment? I like, especially in the backdrop of everything that's going on in lockdown, et cetera. What are you learning? Yeah. So I can talk you through kind of the like transition that we see. So because we're in this engineering effectiveness space, we often will see people come in where they're like, oh yeah, cool. So, you know, the work delivery side, we're interested in, in some of those metrics. We call it flow of the work, but yeah, we want to know how the work delivery is going. And then when they get into the tool, the top two things that we hear that they're like, this is so cool is one, um, the analysis that we do around how often people are working late into the evenings and on weekends. And two, an analysis that we do around who's doing that glue work, who's, mm -hmm. who's doing a lot of the work to support others. And in that analysis, we also show who's not getting very much support. And I know we're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion later, but there's bias very often. And we've seen this in, in our own data around who is getting less support with their work. Yeah. So what's so wow. interesting is we really see that transition from mm -hmm. the work piece to then saying, oh, yeah, actually all these human things, you know, they're so rich and they're so interesting and there's a lot we can do with this. I'd love as well that it's, it's self-reinforcing when you start rewarding the the glue yeah. and they're often like silence like silenced linchpins that that hold teams together and if they do go then it's like oh oh schweppes what do we do now and i just i love that idea 
Yeah, there was a great, I remember this really early on. So this is before we had implemented anything that we have now, but I remember listening, I think it was a Harvard Business Review podcast where they had this story where it was essentially that it was a team where they had one person where they were like, it happened to be a woman actually too. This one woman on the team, they were like, ah, I don't know, like her own work doesn't really get, like, she's kind of slow. She's not doing that much. And so they, 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 I can't remember if they like fired her, they transitioned her off the team. And then suddenly everyone's work got worse. Mm. And so they ended up going back to her and kind of, you know, like head in their hands saying, we're so sorry. We didn't realize all this other oh stuff gosh. you were doing. Like, can you please come back? And, and I think, you know, in the end they had to like double her salary or something. Yeah. yeah. Rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> yeah. Let's switch gears then into diversity, equity, and inclusion. What is it? Let's start there. Let's just describe what it is and sort of set the context. Yeah. I'll break down the word the words in it first, but then I'll talk about what I think it really means. Yeah. So, so diversity, that's who's in the room. Do we have a good mix of people from different backgrounds that are in, in the room, you know, whatever room of interest we're talking about the I'll do inclusion next inclusion is when those people are in the room, are we valuing those different voices? Are we including them in decision-making? And then equity is about, it's really kind of the zoom out to say, do we have systems and structures that are fair and just? So in the ways that we operate and, and, you know, for a company that's in the ways that we hire, in the ways that we promote people, in the ways that we give step up opportunities at work in all of those things that we do in the day to day, are we doing it in a way that, that, that is fair. Mm. And so that's kind of, you know, those, that's, if you break down the words in practice, it's what's interesting is we so often, I think it's helpful to have the words for DEI because it gives us this concept but also what often happens is it kind of gets pushed over there. It's like, oh, it's that thing. And maybe there's a person who runs it or there's a committee that does it. But actually at its heart, DEI is about how people are working together. And that's that like DEI should be part of everything we're doing as a company. It's, right. it's, it's not a like what it really should be the how for everything yeah. else. Yeah. And so like, you know, I've sort of talked about it a bit, but for us, the product stuff, there's so much of DEI that matters for how we do product, because if we weren't thinking about marginalized groups and how our data could be used to harm marginalized groups, we would not be building a product that is, is supporting those people. And that's like kind and caring and actually useful for them. So that's on the product side, you know, it's, it's how we do our hiring. It's, it's even, it was even in how we thought about our investment raise and what kinds of investors we wanted on board. Yeah. It just like, it really should be this thing that actually is just, you know, the, the like operating system for it all. Yeah. Yeah. And what are the, the phases of awareness and, and structuring that framework into just how we do? Yeah. And do you want me to speak to this from an individual perspective or an organizational perspective? I would, I would love to hear both. Okay. I'll start with the individual because obviously organizations are just a bunch of individuals. Yeah. And so, yeah, the individual one, the, I, I'll talk you through the stages. The, the biggest thing with all of this though, is to talk about DEI, we have to be willing, well, to have a real conversation about it, like a meaningful one. Mm. We're probably going to get uncomfortable and we're probably going to have some feelings. And so I'll try to name the feelings as I kind of go through this. So I think with DEI, there's kind of the initial, like, you know, this thing happened. I kind of don't feel great. Like it's the feeling in the pit of your stomach where you just notice something and maybe it happened to you, 
but maybe it's something that you saw happen, like, you know, I've plenty of examples where I've seen stuff happen to, to people on teams that I've been part of. And it's just the like, ugh, the, the kind of ick feeling. And then I think it's often followed by this, oh, I can help. Like, let me go help those people over there. Mm. And it, I want to name that one because it's really well-intentioned and I think it's great. I think the, the like kind of the, the stage that comes after that is realizing like, oh, I've been part of the problem. <laughs> And here are the times when I like in, in X, Y, Z ways have shut down other voices or have been part of like other people not getting opportunities or whatever else it is. And that one, I think that one's probably the hardest step because there's often a lot of understandable guilt or shame that comes up around it. But also that's the step that like, that's where the real change starts to happen because when we can, you know, it's the like, Yes, we have big systems out here to change because it is also a systemic issue. But if I don't recognize how I've contributed to those systems, like I'm not going to be able to change the system, you know, like I need to know like how I'm interacting with it. So that's on an individual level. And then for an organization, it, I think it mirrors in many ways of just the like, okay, yeah, we want to help. Like, oh, let's go help women. Let's go help Modi and Pacifica. Let's go. And it's very well intentioned, but it that stage leaves out the recognition that like, guess what? Modi and Pacific have been helping themselves for a long time and they've been doing a lot of hard work for a long time. And like same, you know, women have been like doing a lot of hard work for a long time. Yeah. And like, actually a lot of where the real change needs to happen. It's not like, let's lift up these groups. It's like, okay, where have we been the problem? Mm -hmm. And then let's go change that. And it is uncomfortable, but actually what's amazing about that is like, that's what we actually have control over, you know? So as organizations, mm -hmm. We, the, and the other thing I'll say is the default is that it's not equitable and there's a lot to it. And like, that probably brings up feelings for people, but that is just the world that we live in. Like, yeah. Like if we can't acknowledge the fact that the systems we live in, they're the relics of colonization, right? You're in Australia. I'm in Aotearoa, New Zealand, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are things that have been handed down to us or looking at the, you know, like women not getting the right to vote until later or, right, there's so many layers of things that we just inherited some junk. And so as a result, our, and our institutions, our organizational structures, they come from that. Mm. And so it's uncomfortable to acknowledge that. But when we do, like, guess what? You know, this is one of the things I love about building a company. We can just change it. Mm. We can say, sweet, we're just going to do hiring differently. And we're just going to do like, you know, we're going to do the way that we set salaries differently and we're going to do our promotion process differently. And it, and so what I love is particularly for startups, the same way that we get so excited about innovating with the products that we're doing, we can do that with the companies that we're building. And let's be really honest. If we're not like the way that we build amazing products is by have amazing, having amazing teams of people to build those products. Like in many ways, I think getting the team piece right is actually number one because so it all follows from that mm. that is the beauty of starting fresh yes. and starting anew is that you're creating your own world yes and the world that you want to see yeah and i i just as i know too on this one because i this like we talk about this all the time as a team. We don't just have big goals around the product we're creating. We have big goals around the type of team and the type of company that we're creating too. And it, yeah, I just think there's so much more opportunity for startups to realize that like, actually we get to shape both of those. Go a layer deeper into that. You've identified why it's so important. It's the operating system. It's how people work together. 
Can you share maybe a few examples of how, how that might work in practice, how Multitudes is doing it at such an early stage and, and what sort of rewards you're seeing? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, some examples of how we've done it with Multitudes. So at, I think the very first thing is the value side and seeing how how DEI fits in with the values that we have. And for us, for a long time, it was kind of, this, you know, this is very often with companies, the values are sort of an intuitive thing. And so we always knew we had this value. And then eventually when we wrote down our values, it became one that's very clear for us. So we have a value that's called see and shape the system. And it, I could talk about that, but we're, we are thinking both about the systems within our organization, but also the systems of the world that we're part of and how can we shape those too. And so that piece, like that's, that's what connects this concept of DEI to the why for us as a company. Like we've, we've all decided, we've agreed this really matters to us. So that's, that's sort of the first piece. And then the second piece is we figured out what was our action plan. So it helped that I had run a diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting business. So I did one of the foundational things that I just ran for the team was an ally skills workshop. And that it was an intro to the fact that oppression exists and it talks a bit about the different types of oppression that are out there. And then at the very end of it, it prompts people to create their own action plan. Mm. So we kind of kicked it off with that. And then we've, since then we've had two streams going, there's sort of the organizational action plan, and then there's some individual action plans. And so on the organizational level, we have every quarter, we do a one week strategy team planning week. And one of the days is kind of our like culture DEI day, at least one, like it'll, it'll often end up being more than that. And so we always, we always have something related to our DEI action plan. So we've done workshops on Te Tiritio Waitangi, which is the tree of Waitangi here in, in New Zealand and the history of colonization and, and, you know, ongoing colonization and what that looks like in, in modern day New Zealand. The last team week that we just had in September we did an introduction to Te Reo Māori, so the Māori language, and practiced our pronunciation and, and learned a little bit of tikanga, so like some of the customs and, and practices around that. So anyway, we just kind of have an ongoing thing and we're, you know, little by little, like we're doing, we're investing some time in that. And then, and then there's, you know, the how piece, which just filters through everything. So I might pause mm -hmm. on that, but we can come back to that, that yep. like that impacts all That's that good. we do. And then on the individual side, each person has set up their own action plan and then has an accountability buddy. And it... Like it's not huge. We probably check in once a month or two and people get to decide for themselves, like, what does that look like? How deep am I going into this? And, and some of the stuff that people have come up with, it's as simple as like, hey, when my family members say racist things, I'm going to call them out. <laughs> you know? or, or for others, it's, it's a little bit more public. Like one of our team members is an amazing artist just on the side, <laughs> like just for fun. She's one of our data scientists, Jenny. And yeah, you know, there's some... In, that she had committed to around like creating some art around some of these issues that she cares about and sharing that. So that's, that's one example. And then the last thing I'll say that is really important is then how do you measure it as you go? And, and, and that can, you know, there's lots of different ways you can think about that. And so I'm happy to dive deeper into that if you're curious too. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to unpack the, how that you were describing. And as you mentioned, the oftentimes it's, it's too late because it's not at the front of our mind because of the bias and how do you sort of build it in as a leading action to help build better teams right at the top of the funnel? Yeah, this is where I think there's a huge advantage for companies that talk about this sooner rather than later, because the sooner you talk about it, the sooner it starts just getting woven in. 
So one example I can give is because for us right at the beginning, this was a, it was, you know, even before we had the value that we'd written down, it was a, it was a core feeling. It's part of our hiring process. Like as part of the hiring process, we ask about how people have taken action to support diversity, equity, and inclusion in their communities. And it, you know, we have variations of ways that we kind of look into that, but that is a thing we explicitly are looking for. And so it means that by the time we've hired somebody, they're already people, either they've thought about it a lot or they're people who, you know, well, maybe have thought about it a little, but like are really interested in learning more. And so I think that one way that helps is it's not just me carrying it. It's the whole team. And it's not just one person. You know, the worst thing with this stuff is it's one junior person who really cares and leadership isn't listening. It's everyone on the team thinking about it and bringing their own perspective. So that's one thing that we've, I know, you know, not every team is there, but it like, this is where get some help. You know, there's all sorts of like DEI consultants that you can hire to come in and, and help train you up on some of the stuff and like get your team kind of clued into looking for these, these opportunities. So that's been one thing. Another way, and I, like I keep going back to the product one, cause I think that is so important too. And we think about DEI in terms of the people side, but we, again, this is like, we're starting the conversations really early on. Like we early on said, look, data ethics is going to be a big thing that we need to think about. So what are our principles for thinking about data ethics? And we, like, we've now put together a blog post. We were like, cool, we're ready to share it publicly. And, you know, and so, yeah, I think earlier on, but also even for companies that aren't at that earlier stage, like, it's great to ask for help. And, and um, there are plenty of people who can help you get there. And also the asking for help, you know, might be bringing in external people, but also you probably have people inside your own company that really care about this too. And, but the risk there, the key thing is that, leadership has to be willing to get uncomfortable mm. and and to like be taking the front foot because if not if the leaders aren't taking the first steps with it then the then you'll just burn out the other people on the team that you're overloading with with this work totally and and i'd love to go one step deeper into that how obviously marginalization and oppression exists how do you even for someone who isn't at the beginning of their journey and it is later on and they are listening to this and they, they, they are going actually crap, this is a situation that I need to address in my company or my organization. How do they actually frame that into having the right conversation? What's the best way to do it? So the first thing I would say, this is an individual action is to, to, to start up front with their own learning. And that can look, it can look, there's a lot of different ways that can look. So one thing that I did in my own life was a few years back, I was looking, I was doing like the list of like, oh, what are the books that I read this year? And I happened to notice that they'd all been written by white men. Mm. And I, I read that, I was like, oh, like these are not my values. You know, <laughs> obviously there are all sorts of other amazing people with important perspectives and I didn't read their books. Yeah. And so from that point forward, I, I like kind of flipped it and tried to like read books that are by all the other people, you know, that aren't by white men. But I also like in terms of who I follow on Twitter, in terms, in terms of who I follow on Instagram, I follow all these different voices and it's, and, and I think this is where it's important to name the feelings. Sometimes some of the activists that I follow, you know, I'll read things. I'll be like, Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I'm like, Ooh, like I feel uncomfortable. Like I've, I think I've been part of that problem, you know, but that like, I think it's important for leaders to do that upfront. Because if they're not starting to do some of that internal processing, it's going to come out in a team meeting. Mm. Like at some point, if you're not, if you're not finding and facing your own discomfort, 
you know, and find some support, find some friends, whatever you need to do. But if you're not doing that upfront work, it's going to come out in a team meeting when someone's suggesting something and it just somehow like hits something and you're like, oof, you know, I've been part of the problem. So I really think that upfront work is really important. Um, and then like in terms of engaging in the company, I also think like starting from listening there too, and also being really honest. And, and again, like we just have to keep naming the uncomfortable things, being honest about power and privilege. So I, I'm now a CEO of a company and there is power to that position. And we don't like to name that, but the more that we do, like, it means that, you know, there's conversations where if I say it versus someone else on the team says it, it's gonna come, it'll, it just is gonna land differently. And mm. if I'm not carrying that responsibility, then I might end up hurting. And similarly, so that's one type of power, right? Like leaders need to, this, and I'm always, I sometimes do better at this than others. I'm always trying to be like, be quiet <laughs> to myself. Like, you know, I could, you could tell I'm a talkative person. I jump in trying to be like, okay, no, like <laughs> pause, like just hold on for a minute, you know? And, and so that's like a constant thing that I'm always working on, but it's in part because I know the position that I'm in. And then the second thing I'll say around that is the privilege side. And, and so I'm a white person. And so, you know, there's some things we got to talk about there. And like these concepts, like white shame and white fragility and all that, like there's certainly things that I've felt and experienced in my life and know that, yes, like it's important for me to be caring and sit with that and, you know, find other white people that I could have chats about and be like, oh, okay, you know, how can we be better white people in the world? But also like, that's not work. I can't take that work to my team. You know, I very fortunately have a team that is a lot of different ethnicities and, and it's not all white. And so like, you know, I need to do that work before I'm engaging with them. So anyway, I guess I'm just like, there's the upfront listening and learning and being really honest about this stuff. And then I actually think that if people are starting with that, the way that they engage with the functional stuff is just going to be so much easier. Because let's be honest, it's not that hard to be like, cool, we run a, we want to run a workshop on this thing. We're going to like do a bit of research and we're going to call someone and they're going to come in and they're going to run it for us. It's not that hard. We do it for all sorts of other things. The stuff that's hard, and I can say this having been the person that's come in to run the workshops, what's hard is when the more junior people on the team had like have called in a, a DEI consultant to run a workshop. And then in the middle of the workshop, the senior person is having some kind of like defensiveness or emotional reaction. And then they just kind of take over the conversation, you know, wow. like that's how you, and, and fortunately most of the workshops that I did, it, you know, it wasn't like that, yeah. but, but that, you know, I've seen it and I've heard stories from other people and other companies, like then it doesn't matter that you ran the workshop. You just wasted that whole workshop because you weren't in a place of readiness to be able to talk about some really uncomfortable things and face your feelings about it. And I don't mean to be harsh. Like I, this is hard work and we do need to get support. But as leaders, we need to recognize the power dynamics that, that are just real, that are structurally embedded. And then we need to plan for that and get our support not in the room with our team. I don't think you're much. I think you're just being very aware. Okay. <laughs> and what do you think the actions that you could be taking after you've hit that phase of awareness effectively? Yeah. So then, and we did this as a team, we kind of were like, cool, what are some of the different areas that we know we need to learn more about? And so, um, like, so that, then it's just a like, cool, let's talk to the team. Let's get some different things. So for multitudes, what that looks like is we, most of our team is in New Zealand, but we have some team members in Australia and, and we've customers spread out all over the world too. So we've got customers in the States, we have customers in the UK. And so one of the things for us that we talked about really early on is 
cool, colonization looks different across these different countries. And so we're going to, we'll do it in phases. We're not going to overwhelm ourselves, but we know that we want to spend some time learning about colonization in New Zealand. We want to learn about it in Australia. We also want to learn about it in the States. And so we kind of, we were like, cool, here's sort of the, you know, it's like with our product roadmap, we've got like our learning roadmap for the DEI stuff. And then we're just kind of working through that too. But yeah, you know, it might be different for other people. And that's where it was, it was really a team conversation to say, cool, great. What are we doing? And then once you've identified it and people are ready to get uncomfortable, you know, there's so many great people out there that are doing this work. And I think that's one of the wonderful things today is there has been this growth in like the, the providers that are willing to do the, let's be honest, emotional labor to dive into these topics. And what are some of the goals and or measures that you've set for the team? Yeah. So one of the things that we're watching is the diversity of our own team and, and, you know, being honest about kind of where we stand. And so, and that like the, the big ones that we're sort of watching there are around the gender diversity and then the ethnic diversity as well. So that's just something that we keep an eye on. And that of course, you know, we're thinking about that in the hiring process as well. And then we, we don't have a board yet, but when we have a board, right, it'll be kind of those same filters of like, cool, these are, these are the people with the most power in this organization. So Let's have some conversations about who's ending up on that board. And similarly, as our, as our leadership team grows too, also keeping an eye on that. So those are some of the very real measures. We are also like in terms of, of things that we, there's the things that we can track and then there's the things that we just keep an eye on. So like one thing that there's some cool tools for like Zoom conversations, but mostly, you know, an in-person conversation is hard to measure is share voice, but just watching like, okay you know, in every meeting, who's the person who we haven't heard from yet? Let's just check and see if they have something they want to add, or who's the person that's been talking a lot. And let's just kind of nudge them to like pause and and listen. So there there's like, there is a degree to which just having a whole team that's thinking about it means we can also weave it into the harder to measure things. And then, you know, we're, we're young, but certainly as we grow, we'll do a DEI survey, you know, we'll get some more metrics around that stuff. Um, and the last one I'll say too, which is that like, you know, it's less of a measure. It's more like, do we hit our goals is we are tracking. So we've got our organization plan and it's, that one's very much like, cool. Did we run some type of training every quarter that's on one of these issues we know we care about? So it's sort of a yes, no thing. And it's, that's also true with the individual action plans. It's very much like, okay, cool. Did you do the thing that you said you were going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Got you. And how much time are you allocating to making sure and creating you have a diverse and inclusive culture and where does it sit? Because really it's how we do things and it is culture. How do you sort of think about allocating culture and what you do? Yeah. So this is where I'll say too, the, the upfront time to get the systems tracking in a good direction, then saves time later. Cause once it is the habit, you know, once that how is a habit, then you don't even think about it. It's just how you do things. And so actively right now, it's probably a couple hours a month on average, right? If you think about like every quarter, we've got this bigger workshop, there's some time setting it up, but then everything else, like I could try to pick it out and be like, okay, well, how much time do we spend in some of the data ethics conversations about our product? Or how much time do we spend thinking about like, do we design an equitable hiring process or, but it really, but just, it just gets embedded. And, and in terms of who holds the responsibility for it, it is my firm belief that the leader should be holding that responsibility. So, I mean, I can give you an example. The whole team is incredibly busy. And so this, this strategy week that we just had, it was, it was shortly after our beta launch and we were all like very heads down getting the beta launch out the door. 
And so the beta launched and then we didn't yet have the person lined up for our strategy week at the end of September. And so I, again, whole team is busy. So I was the person who was figuring out like, okay, like, you know, who's the provider that we're going to do and like doing the legwork to make sure that it happened. But, but that's because it's important. And, mm. and I think I need to like show that with my actions too, that I really believe love it's worth my time. I love that. And what can employees do to create and facilitate such a culture? Yeah. So I think there's a lot and I, I do, I've said this earlier, but I do just want to caveat it that it's real. it is hard. Obviously there's always hope, but it's hard if leaders aren't leading mm. on it. And so I think one of the things as an employee, if I think about how to strategically approach this, it's who are the people on the leadership team that I know are the friendlies and, and cause there's people are at different stages of this journey. And so finding the people who are a little bit further along and are at that leadership level that it just, it means that you can have one leader who kind of, who gets it more, who's then a peer and who's nudging another leader. And I've seen that, that really is, I think in many ways, the most effective way for change anyway. Like we don't, we would think about, we would talk about this a lot with the Ally Skills Workshops. Some outside consultant who comes in and tells you some stuff for a few hours, that's not going to be the lasting impact. The lasting impact is going to be the people in the room who were excited to learn this stuff and who like soak it in and then they go out and they talk to their peers because change, real change, and I've seen this, I really believe this, like real change happens when we've got trust. And so who do you trust? You know, you trust your peer, you trust the, the like workmate who you maybe are not sitting next to these days while we're in lockdown, but like that you're on Zoom calls with all the time and it has to be within those. And so, yeah, like for an employee, it's like, okay, who are my friendlies? Who are the people who are going to back me up? And then let me put in some time to kind of nudge them along on their journey and give them a little bit of support. And obviously that's, that's extra work for the employee. And if, you know, depending on what types of oppression they do or don't experience, like there's definitely emotional labor there. And so it's very much on the employee as well to decide like, okay, is that trade-off worth it? You know, do I think I'll get enough from this investment to, to make up for the extra effort I have to do here? I love that. And I wanted to end on what are some of the values that you hold true and, and maybe share one or two that, that you've lived on and, and actually experienced? Yeah. And do you mean for like me as Lauren or multitudes as an multitudes. Yeah, cool. But, yeah. I mean, they're very aligned, let's be honest, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as I was saying that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I do. I think for us, one of the key ones is that one that I mentioned before. So see and shape the system. Mm. And it, I am... Um, I love seeing how our team implements it. So for example, we noticed, again, we have a team that cares about this stuff. And so we noticed that in some of our Slack channels, people were kind of jumping in and being like, ah, like this happened in current affairs and this is happening in world events. And, you know, and it tied in with some of these values of like, here are some systems that aren't working as well as we would like for people, you know, marginalized groups in the world. And so then somehow, and I don't even remember how this came about. Someone was like, oh, what if we just do a current affairs chat every other week? Cause obviously like we have some energy around this. And so we do, and you know, it's flexible. Like sometimes we keep it and sometimes we don't, but like, we just have this little outlet to be like, yeah, you know, we're, we are part of the world. <laughs> we're not just like, we created a company and we're off on this Island and we'll see y'all later. Like we're part of the world. And as one of my team members put it, he was like, yeah, you know, otherwise it's hard. Like you go to work and then you leave and you're kind of hit with like, oh, well, here's the news that happened today while I was at work. And I probably have some feelings about like that and that. And so, yeah, recognizing that like that stuff is out there, it's going to impact our team. And so how can we support each other as we're facing those world events? That's been a really 
amazing one. The other one, so we set up this allyship action plan and you know, some, some months we're like better at checking in about it than others. And there's another team member who has like, he has been the accountability person. He has been like, Hey, we have not checked in about this recently. Like, when are we doing it again? And, and I love it. Like, he'll just come straight to me and be like, Hey, Lauren, <laughs> like, when are we doing it? And, it? and I love that's Vivek. Like I'm realizing I should just give credit to people by name. And so, yeah, it's like, I, I just love that. Cause it actually is something that we're just all carrying in our own way. Mm. Thank you so much for your relentlessness on building a product, a meaningful product, your self-awareness and your care. It was a pleasure talking to you. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Now that we've heard from Lauren, we're going to zoom out and get an investor's perspective by speaking with Samantha Wong, a partner of Blackbird, to hear why she's fallen in love with multitudes, whether you should raise venture funding and how to optimize your fundraising process. Sam, thanks for joining me on Wild Hearts. Pleasure as always. Thank you. Let's set the scene. So Lauren was introduced to Blackbird by a limited partner after raving reviews on her consulting company. What were your first impressions? Lauren is one of those people that just has so much sparkle and magnetism. It just hits you smack in the face and she, Mm. you want to have more conversations with her. She has a fascinating sort of life story in terms of the places that she's lived, the languages she speaks, what she's passionate about, melding this love of data with a love of people, a very deep, genuine interest in inclusion and diversity. That has, that that, she just leaves a lasting impression. It's like Mm -hmm. a really smart, really magnetic person who's going to do awesome things in life. You don't quite maybe know what it is, but, and and yeah, and I think when I did meet her, she was um, sort of pre-founding multitudes at that stage. And what do you see as the magic with multitudes? I do think it's very much Lauren. And, mm. you know, this was very much a pre-seed company, you know, no revenue, very early revenue, you know, a few bit, a few bit of customers, a bit of a sticky tape together product. And so the magic was really Lauren's background and her journey, having the data background, sort of the international experience, particularly working in the Arab world, then coming to New Zealand and doing this consulting around DE and I diversity, equity and inclusion. And then her reaction to having this kind of consulting business in, I guess, what is a, a niche, like a valuable niche, but a niche and thinking about how she can scale that impact with product. And it's like a really difficult problem because she, you want she wants to take this approach of passive data no one wants to log what they're doing but if you're just taking data as truth it's going to have embedded in it all this bias and so you do need a layer of human intelligence which is un- passing out data and facts from factors that might be causing those data and facts to arrive at some level of insight around what is really going on at an operational level in teams and with managers to actually affect real change. Can you get away with having a an idea of rough product roadmap when you raise external funding? Obviously, Blackbird, we, we care a lot about products and product roadmaps. What's the bar that someone should set before? Like, where's the release valve on, on how much pressure I should put on myself before I start to think about going outside? It's a really interesting question. I, I think I think it's hard to quantify. Maybe an er, an early leading signal is when a founder has like kind of a group of people that they would like maybe like to hire if they could possibly afford it, and 
they're at a point where they can actually articulate to those people, here's what needs to be done. And those people are excited to come on board and do mm. the things that need to be done. And let's talk about how to best set up that process, even on the basics. Oftentimes founders will raise money and they run an excellent investment relationship building exercise. Some will raise money and it's been terrible and there are scars, but they're still raised. And there's lots of conflicting advice out there. When you're trying to find and build a product that customers love, what is the right process to increase your odds of success when it comes to raising? I'll maybe answer the question slightly different, which is that I think startups need a lot of luck, right? There's just a, there's a, there's a role to be played with serendipity striking. And it's really hard to get lucky if no one knows what you're doing. And some people just think of investors and see the dollar signs on the head <laughs> um, as if that's all you can be useful for. But investors are also just like hyper-connected people. And there's, there's, we're very likely to be able to be helpful before we can write checks with things just like customer discovery or validation, or we've seen like this sort of thing, maybe slightly different, maybe exactly the same. Like, and these are the sorts of things, you know, I would be thinking about if I were you and that can really increase your surface area for luck or accelerate you know, your learnings as a founder. And it can also help you work out where you find sort of, I was going to say intellectual chemistry, but I feel like it sounds a bit pretentious, but like, you know, a shared, <laughs> you know, like a shared kind of belief system or a shared vision or yeah. a, a, around kind of what you're achieving or who just doesn't get it or whatever. So I think it's just ha like having dialogue rather than just sort of asking for a coffee with no kind of clear objective. I would say it is more like a sales process where this is how the best run fundraisers work. And, and I don't really understand why people don't do it this way is you parallelize all of your conversations at each stage from marketing qualified lead down to opportunity, down to negotiation and close. And, and maybe the parallel to think about is like selling your house. Most people only own one house if they're so lucky. <laughs> And would you sell your house by sort of stopping people in the street, having a conversation, inviting them in, inviting them in a few more times and kind of starting to scribble down what price they might like to pay and what deposit they might like to pay. And then working out that, oh, actually they can't afford your house and then go back out into the street and replay that. Like your company is way more valuable than your house. So mm -hmm. create an auction, speak to all the relevant buyers for your suburb, i.e. your type of company, like the kind <laughs> of, like the round size that you're, yeah. you're trying to raise for and, you know, the type of company that you are building. Paralyze all your coffee meetings or Zoom meetings as they probably are now. Some people will drop out of that. That's fine. You actually want that. It's actually this weird quirk, I think, of the Australian, New Zealand market where we really struggle to say no to each other, but mm -hmm. anything other than yes is a no and you and you, you as a founder really want to focus your time on, on the people who are interested to move to the next stage. You just kind of like um, keep, keep moving people th through the funnel until hopefully you have several term sheets and competitive tension in the round to have ultimately the benefit of choice. Maybe it's not intuitive, but unlike maybe selling your house, like not everything is about price. Given you're kind of going to, I'm really mixing metaphors here, but you're going to live with your, <laughs> the person you sell your house to. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but 
you know, 10 years, like there are other things that, that might years, matter right? other than just evaluation. And so w- what is great is to have several people right at the end there who are all keen to be a part of your journey. And hopefully you can, as a founder, pick and mix, right? I'll take that valuation with this level of dilution and this board member and 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 get an optimal result mm. for yourself as a founder. But the saddest sort of fundraising stories are when someone really has this their heart set on a particular investor and narrows their aperture to just focus on them, spends a lot of time trying to woo them they pass. And in the meantime, they've considerably shortened their runway, maybe to a fatal point, or I've actually even seen the flip side, which is, you know, a founder has somehow nedged themselves into thinking that this great investor they really would like to work with is too good for them. And they're scared of the rejection. And so, you know, take money from what they perceive to be lower resistance investors. And again, they've moved in with that person and they're living with them for 10 years. Mm. And there's a lot to chew off there, but <laughs> I will go with one, which is it takes a while to sell a house. How long does it take typically to raise some funds? You know what? It doesn't actually take that long if you paralyze your process. <laughs> if you run an auction, seriously, it's like a four-week, five-week open home and you have an auction and hopefully you have a winning bidder. And then there's some conveyancing work to get done. And it's usually a four-week, maybe longer conveyance type period and then you settle and that's two to three months like that is a super optimized real estate process and I would say that's a super optimized impossible venture process as well and they typically drag out if people haven't built the process up front for parallelizing so they haven't got they're not kind of having all their conversations in one go they're responding to information requests in a very ad hoc manner rather than like thinking up front okay what are all the FAQs get the Notion page or the Google Docs or the drive set up. And this is where as well, like kind of sharing early can be helpful. If you've talked to a lot of different people, you can get feedback earlier on some of these things. So you're not kind of creating them for the first time when you're actually actively fundraising and trying to close. Switching gears a little bit. At the beginning, super early on, there's one, maybe three founders and I'd love to understand how you think about culture, such an early stage. Is it important? Should founders think about it? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I think about this as sort of, like, obviously, you you know, you can't test for culture very easily at that stage. You can't say like, Mm. show me your culture and surveys. But what you're trying to get a sense for is like, what is the culture that they will build? What is their personal value system? Do they think it's important at all? And yeah, it's it's probably more perceived than talked to, if that makes sense. Like you'll see, see signs about how they think about culture in, do they have an ESOP? How do they think about ESOP allocations? How do they make trade-offs between different decisions? Who have they tried? Who have they um, prioritised as their early hires, et cetera, et cetera? And if you're an early employee joining a company, that is just with founders and you're the first 10, 15. Do you have any tips or advice for operators who might be joining a a company that are sub 20 people that might impact the company in a really positive way, especially if they've found themselves in in a company that hasn't really thought about culture? Oh, from a culture perspective, I mean, culture is really crafted and it's top down and 
In terms of like what makes it really awesome, like early employee, I would say it's like a really, it's an ownership mentality. Like you are hopefully literally an owner in terms of having ESOP or employee shares. And a founder is just running around wearing so many hats, doing like probably three people's job. And the extent to which you can see what is the work that needs to be done that I can take away without even asking and just being very high responsibility, proactive about it is such a huge lever for founders. It has such a compounding benefit to to, to founders when you can hire those sorts of people really early. And for the employee, like there's almost limitless growth for those sorts of people in companies as well. Awesome magical stories can flow from that. And what do you think is the difference between a terrible culture and, a, and an amazing one? So let's start with terrible because it's so, so much easier easy. in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll go with the easy question. So lack of transparency is a big one. E- egos and, and an unwillingness to, you know, acknowledge what we don't know and, and sort of take a very like scientific inquiry approach to building a startup. Like everything's a hypothesis, right? And so everything's there to be proven or disproven. And so... I think like that balance between having very clear conviction around your vision and a a sort of go through the walls mentality is so important in startups, but also become a destructive force internally for the culture. If people feel like they can't challenge even potentially to bring better ideas or contradictory evidence or being able to kind of course correct in the face of contradictory evidence, sort of not Um, being empathetic enough, not holding high enough standards for people. The modern version of nepotism is like, I used to work with them or I'm mates with them or, you know, what, you know, somehow having a non-merit based recognition system, any form of bullying and, you know, harassment when you harassment. get to that side yeah that's yeah. it's not a cut that's yeah. a but those things right like those things um can only kind of take root when some of the other stuff is present like you, a bully can enter a great culture and just get snuffed out because all the other infrastructure just doesn't tolerate it like there's too much transparency there's too much merit-based promotion it, it, it it's very hard for that personality to to get ahead in a culture like that it's my personal belief and experience. So the flip side, I guess, of the amazing cultures, I, I really, I mean, this is maybe not like answering it directly, but uh, they feel like living organisms where there's like a very healthy dialogue between leaders and the rest of the organization around what's working, what's not working, what we should be doing better, what, what ambitious goals have we not set for ourselves? How could we keep pushing ourselves more? So they're not this like static thing where they hold too tightly to kind of a particular definition of, of what they are. I, I don't know if that sounds a bit airy-fairy, but, and so some of the kind of hallmarks of that commitment to measuring culture in, in the, you know, in the first place and doing something about it, transparency. Yeah. All, all of the things I said that terrible pinches don't have, like the em- em- empathy, sharing equitably the gains of the company sort of values driven frameworks for things you're not going to have that on day one but as you mature as a company you should be thinking about how to build frameworks for decision making especially around important decisions and focus I would say and a very kind of everybody knows what needs to be done and is moving 
in sync in the same direction. I have noticed in board decks recently that a few companies have started sharing how they've lived their values on a quarterly basis. That's that's one thing that's really stuck out to me. Was yeah, operationalizing the, yeah. The, the values. Yeah, for sure. Lauren and I spoke at lengths about DEI and I wanted to understand from an investment point of view, how does DEI play into your decision-making and how, how much should founders be thinking about that? So I think DEI sits in across two categories for, for me when I think about investments. So one is around culture and team in the sense of will they magnetize talent in the beginning when it's a super small company you're really indexing on the founder and the magnetism of the founder e.g like lauren Mm. but at a certain um scale you're really betting on the quality of the people the first hires to magnetize the other hires and at that point i'll start to squint and be like is this in a place that is good or bad or irredeemable have they tried have they not tried you know do they care etc and then on the other lens that I think that we as actually collectively as a team think about it is after a pitch, we have these Google forms, we talk about, you know, on a scale of one to five, how do we all feel about the market, the team, the distribution, et cetera, et cetera. And we have out of five questions from an environmental social good perspective or an impact perspective, what, what are the concerns or what other sort of positives that that this you know investment could achieve and and so it is like very front and center when we're almost making a binary decision outcome about whether to do deeper diligence on a company and and contemplate and and take it to the very serious level of interest the sql Mm. opportunity level of interest in the funnel and it's and it's sort of one of those things at that point and it's often like a good point in time to sort of have a conversation with the founder about how they feel about it you can be maybe a bit too rash I think in terms of like seeing a team be like wow this is just all white men no I think it's much more interesting and more constructive to sort of have a conversation with the founder and say hey the composition of your team just doesn't look super diverse right now how do you feel about that and then like nine times out of ten it's just always been like such a fruitful conversation and built conviction for me and also it was like okay this is something that we can help with and here are some resources and, you know, mm. et cetera, et cetera. I hope that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Sam, thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us on Wild Hearts. My pleasure as always. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email. Wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe and if you liked the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you in a fortnight.